Hey everyone. Um, we thought the interview with Dr. Shepard was just so amazing. We couldn't just keep it in our own archives. We wanted to put it out there for all you Marvel nerds. Yes, I know you exist. Um, so this is what this episode is. It's an uncut and unfiltered interview with Dr. Shepard. It runs for like what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? 35 minutes uncut. So enjoy. Andrew Shepard is an assistant professor of African-American literature and culture in the University of Utah's Department of English. His research focuses on modes of genre fiction such as science fiction, fantasy, and horror as they intersect with questions of race, gender, and sexuality, and the ways in which marginalized people utilize the conventions of genre to address concerns specific to their communities. His current research project, titled Temples of Tomorrow, African-American speculative fiction and historical narrative investigates black authors' use of science fiction and fantasy as a means of working through a, a vexed relationship to history and laying the foundation for a more utopian future. His follow-up project explores the 50-plus years history of Marvel Comics Black Panther. Whoa. <clears throat> His follow-up project explores the 50-plus history of Marvel Comics' Black Panther, charting the character's evolution from its earliest appearances in the Fantastic Four to the blockbuster film incarnation. How are you doing today? Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing great. How awesome. are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, could you have the mic a little closer to you? Yeah, yeah sure. Thank you. Awesome. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about your research projects that you're currently working on? Uh, sure. So um, right now there's the, the Temples for Tomorrow book, which is uh, basically, it was my dissertation, mm -hmm. uh, like in, in grad school. And uh, basically, that's sort of looking at it, it dawned on me, we often talk about uh, African American or Afro diasporic people's engagement with science fiction, or the speculative genres, science fiction, fantasy, horror, etc, as being like Afrofuturistic. And it dawned on me, that a lot of it is uh, is concerned with the past. It's it's kind of looking backwards. It's uh, a lot of it is about either reimagining the past or sort of uh, sort of taking elements like say the history of slavery or colonialism and like sort of reimagining them in this way that sort of even when it's based in the future is is often sort of past centric. And so it, it seemed worthwhile to look at that. And so it looks at it, at that phenomenon in, in a number of contexts. And so I, I work on authors like uh, Samuel Delaney and Octavia Butler, who, who are sort of primarily known as science fiction authors, as well as people who are more canonical sort of uh, literary authors like Charles Chestnut, for example, who deals with speculative tropes like he's he's dealing with conjure stories that is to say about african-american traditional folk magic but he's he's doing so in a way that until fairly recently probably conferred a little more uh literary respectability than uh than basically like science fiction traditionally has mm -hmm. so it's really interesting almost that uh african-american writing has been pigeonholed into these very specific genres in the future and you're saying that 
it's more focused on reimagining or restructuring the past to be more understandable. Is that correct? Yeah, kind of. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, no, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Like, I mean, basically, the the term Afrofuturism was coined by a, a journalist named Mark Deary. Uh, he he wrote an essay. It was actually a collection of interviews uh, called "Black to the Future," and he interviews. Uh, Science, uh, science fiction author and theorist uh, Samuel Delaney for that. And then he interviews uh, Greg Tate, who's a cultural critic, and Trisha Rose, who is a music theorist. And he basically sort of talks about uh, various modes of, of Afro-diasporic speculative thought. And he sort of, uh, you know, basically, based, uh, off the, the basis of those interviews, he sort of proposes to all three of them, you know, it's like, I've got this term, Afrofuturism, that basically I feel encompasses like an aesthetic approach to to uh, sort of technoculture in the 20th century that that is uh, typical of a lot of you know african-american creatives and and he sort of uses that as like kind of like an umbrella term to to talk about black science fiction but also like say the type of like you know like Detroit techno, uh, like, you know, sort of uh, music that was coming out in the, like, the the 70s and the 80s or, you know, sunrise jazz uh, and the the sort of science fiction themes that are there, like certain, you know, films that, that would fall into that that category, uh, comics, because the milestone line of, of sort of uh, superhero comics featuring black and brown peoples that was founded by Dwayne McDuffie and Dennis Cowan and among others uh, was popular around that time. That's the same line that produces uh, static from the, the static shot cartoon from, from a few years back. Oh, yeah. Or maybe something like Africa Bambada and the Zulu Nation. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I really like their music. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah sorry. I just nerded out a little bit. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the intersect between comics and race? Sure. I know that's a very like broad uh, topic. Yeah. Um, let's see, uh, in terms of comics and race, I mean, for a long time, like, I mean, the people, various non uh, non white or minority ethnic peoples, they just their their participation in the medium of comics wasn't as wasn't as extensive. So, like, basically. Uh, like the the first, for instance, like black writer at Marvel was Christopher Priest, who incidentally wrote one of the definitive Black Panther runs. Uh, but basically Priest was uh, or, or Jim Owsley was hired as an editor during the, the Jim Shooter era. And originally he was he was sort of uh, doing editorial work. And then he he sort of got his his shot at, at bat as a writer and he wrote spider-man for a bit and wrote uh the falcon uh and basically and from there got offered luke cage and, and iron fist like the heroes for a higher title and and basically you uh, like that door has, has has opened there were there were black creatives working in the industry you had uh billy graham who uh, worked as an artist on the black panther title you had dennis cowan you, uh like basically like you have people working, but uh, working in the industry, certainly, but they often weren't in a position to sort of make policy decisions about characters. They often weren't in a position to to create and design characters that were, say, more sort of 
fitting to how they themselves wanted to be envisioned. So like basically the first the first black superhero is actually Black Panther. Uh, the uh, he emerges in uh, May of 1966. It's it's Fantastic Four Volume One Issue 52. Uh, basically, and that uh, that that initial appearance where we we get introduced to Wakanda, we get introduced to Ulysses Claw, the the Andy Serkis character from uh, from the movie version. Um, basically, and we get his origin story. Like that's uh, like you know, it's kind of the novelty of that uh, of Wakanda in that um, in that initial appearance is that basically it kind of subverts your expectations of what an African nation would look like. Nobody sort of expects a techno-utopia in the heart of Africa. And it's kind of drawing upon like these older sort of tropes from, from say the colonial romance or, uh, or, uh, you know, sort of uh, lost, uh, lost race fiction, like H. Ryder Haggard's like she or, or uh, King Solomon's minds. Like these stories of of like hidden enclaves in the like remote reaches of the world, where there are people hidden away with uh, technology or knowledge, often stuff that they don't understand. That that basically you know colonial adventurers sort of dis- uh, happen upon or discover, and so there are elements of of that like sort of maybe less than progressive uh, genre that are sort of woven into the fabric of, of Black Panther that, you know, basically kind of get get massaged out over like the intervening decades as other people sort of uh, approach that, uh, the, those characters in that setting and and sort of build upon it. Like one of the things that that's kind of interesting about Black Panther is, is uh, and, and comics in general as, as a medium like when you talk about shared universes, they're kind of they're kind of built by bricolage. Like they're they're sort of they're built piecemeal by by different people contributing at different points. And so basically, in the case of Wakanda, Wakanda gets sort of fleshed out by initially by Stanley and Jack Kirby, but then Roy Thomas sort of builds on it a bit with its Avengers run, and he introduces Mbaku. Uh, then known as the man ape unfortunately uh like yeah his his costume was not super dignified either uh but uh they they uh, ryan coogler really did a lot of work to to sort of uh make that character work for uh for a contemporary audience um basically with the introduction of of like mbaku we we find out a little bit more about wakandans and uh, internal politics we find out about its its sort of attitudes towards religion that you know, you've got like the Black Panther cult, but you've also got the the cult of the white gorilla, and and basically that's one of the ways in which Wakanda is fleshed out. By the time you get to Don McGregor in the seventies, uh, McGregor is is giving us like maps of what the the geography of Wakanda looks like. So like basically, we know what happens when you go up in the mountains and what what you might find there. Uh, basically, like an idea of what the capital city looks like. You know, basically sort of. Uh, giving us sort of insight into what life is like for like everyday Wakandans that, you know, that wasn't present in say earlier iterations and so forth and so on. Like people build off of it and that world becomes, or or that setting becomes more complex as, uh, as other people develop it. And also as, as sort of, you know, as the years move on and, and, and our attitudes towards Africa uh, and African peoples change, the, the narrative itself changes to reflect that. 
No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, a good example of this is also the Mandarin, right? The Mandarin, when he first came out, was a very racist, long-nailed, uh, yeah. just yeah, just a caricature, right? And then over the years, over the decades, as attitudes towards race and sensitivity have changed, um, so have these characters, right? Would yeah. you say that these characters are almost a reflection of ideas within general culture? I mean, I would say so. Like, I mean, it, you you bring up the Mandarin, and like, it's funny because the Mandarin is he's he's kind of uh, at least for a long time he was considered like Iron Man, like Tony Stark's arch nemesis. Like, there was like the question of when are we getting the Mandarin, and like, basically, one of the things is that they they I think wisely realized that the Mandarin would be kind of problematic to do, like in uh, like as he as he was originally conceived, in part because. The way he was originally conceived was he's he's a Fu Manchu archetype, and Fu Manchu is a notoriously sort of you know problematic stereotype about you know Asian peoples. Like it's tied to to yellow peril stories, like these this fear of invasion from uh, from the east, and for that matter, Shang Chi, which which just came out, like Shang Chi, master of kung fu, as originally conceived, part of the whole hook was that Shang Chi is. Uh, is Fu Manchu's rebellious son. Like basically, you know, his his act of rebellion was that I'm not going to become an imperialist warlord. Uh, like basically, you know, like some people drive their cars fast. This is what Shang-Chi chose to do. Uh, but like basically, and it's kind of interesting how the movie deals with that. Like that basically... They can't call the character Chang. Uh, the, they can't call the character Fu Manchu. I think partially due to to the legal rights, uh, but also I think uh, I think also because basically that that character just has kind of a negative valence. So when they write the character in this iteration, uh, the, this filmic version that that just came out, they make a point of, of of humanizing him. Like he's he's not just this sort of rapacious warlord who who sort of. Uh, exists to conquer things. He gets a bit of pathos. He gets uh, like a, a a lost wife that he's mourning. That that's the, the 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 motivation that's that's driving him rather than imperial conquest. And there is like a sort of an attempt to, even while sort of keeping that that basic sort of narrative hook or framework of of Shang Chi rebelling against his his rebel uh, his uh, his villainous father to sort of make the characters a little more sort of fleshed out and three-dimensional so that they don't fall into those types of stereotypes. Yeah, I think that was honestly a very clever move that they were able to do because like you said, the the Mandarin has a lot of importance in the MC, in Marvel Comics because of their uh, relationship with Iron Man himself. Yeah. Um, kind of moving forward, what do you think is the largest difference between the comics and the adap- adaptations? I mean, one of them is is just uh, history. Like, I mean, basically at this point, if we're talking about like Marvel, like the Marvel universe, like as in Marvel universe proper, it, it's uh, it's in its it, it's hit its sixtieth anniversary this month. Like, I mean, uh, or or it's coming up. Uh, Fantastic Four issue one was November of nineteen sixty one. Uh, like basically that's, you know, that's ground zero for, for the Marvel universe as we understand it. Like everything that's happening in the Marvel universe today is always like because of that sliding time scale. 
uh, is basically happens roughly like 10 to 15 years from Fantastic Four issue one. Like, you know, that's around the time that Peter Parker gets bitten by the spider. That's the time that that, you know, Steve comes out of the ice uh, or Captain America uh, and the Avengers are formed, et cetera. That that always happened like 10 years ago. Uh, basically, there is this sort of there were earlier iterations of that company before that, like, you know, Timely Comics and, and Atlas Comics in the 1950s. Timely was the golden age incarnation of it. But basically, one of the things is that comics is, is iterative as a medium. Like, I mean, if we're talking about, like, sort of the shared universes, that they're, they're constantly sort of rebooting and reimagining and recontextualizing those characters to fit in their everyday moment. So you can go back and you look at some of the, the stuff that's in, like, say, early, like, Silver Age Marvel stuff. And a lot of it's, like, heavily Cold War-centric. So, you know, for instance, like Iron Man's original origin story, he was he was abducted by the Viet Cong and uh, and builds like this suit of mechanical armor to escape. And then basically he was originally sort of inspired by uh, by Howard Hughes, like uh, the original Iron Man stories are kind of very yay military industrial complex. They're they're um, they basically sort of take the stance of of. Tony Stark's not doing anything wrong by manufacturing arms. Like, basically, and and that's kind of built into the premise of, of Iron Man. Like, 20 years later, attitudes towards that are changing. And and so by the time you get to the David Michelini, Bob Layton run, um, one, like, the model for Tony Stark has changed. He, he's, uh, because, like, he's modeled more on, say, Tom Selleck. Like, you know, probably the most famous man with a mustache on, on television at that time due to Magnum P.I. And, and basically the politics are, are, have shifted. And so it's much more of a redemption arc. It's, it's much more of a sort of, you know, Tony is making up for, for a career, a, a lifetime of war profiteering by sort of, you know, the, the good he does is Iron Man. And that's the, the version that kind of informs the movies. And similarly, you know, you can look at a lot of these characters and sometimes the, the values haven't, aged well like I mean basically some of the the earliest stuff uh, like Reed Richards is kind of like sexist and condescending towards Sue in, in like the you know the, the comics in a way that that you know that like was normative for like the 1960s but wouldn't pass Buster for like a, a contemporary readership or something like the original Ant-Man wasn't he also abusive to his partner yeah, so that I feel like that was bad custodianship in in the comics. So like that wasn't originally part of like the the sales pitch for for Ant Man. <laughs> like, I, I want to clear that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I ain't saying that. Yeah. So like basically, when Ant Man was conceived, it, they were kind of like you know like husband and wife adventurers. Uh, like you know uh, Hank Pym and, and Janet Van Dyne. They eventually got married. They were founding Avengers. Uh, and originally he was he was sort of this like you know bookish introverted scientist and she was this sort of you know extroverted socialite and they they went on adventures together and then basically as the the characters sort of got developed hank pym one like made some some bad decisions so he's the one who's responsible ultron yeah ultron like yeah i mean once you you sort of build a a sort of you know a genocidal like robot with 
you know, sort of an Oedipus complex that that sort of decides he wants to to wipe out the human race. You know, it, it's hard to live that one down. <laughs> yeah, and like you know, been there before, you know. Yeah, having like, to the best of us. <laughs> yeah, you know, hey. <laughs> but like, so basically, by the time we get to the 1980s, like you know, there's the the idea of of like making these characters more complex. And one of the decisions that decisions that was made was there was going to be a story where um, where Hank was not Ant Man anymore. He was Yellow Jacket, and he was becoming increasingly unhinged. Basically, he was being written as someone who uh, was mentally ill, suffered from from bipolar disorder. And so that basically he was kind of a little bit on the outs with the Avengers and he wanted to sort of uh, uh, sort of shore up his place to make sure that he, he wasn't sort of dismissed as irrelevant. And so he wanted to sort of astroturf a threat that only he could deal with to prove his value to them. And Janet was like, hey, this is a terrible idea. And the idea was the way it was written was that uh, and, and this was like a, a, a story that Jim Shooter wrote. Uh Basically, the way it was written was that Hank was supposed to, in a manic state, was supposed to uh, sort of swing his arm back and sort of try and brush Janet off and, like, end up knocking her backwards. Now, because of the way comics art was was sort of, you know, intended to uh, – how comics artists were trained, basically they were trained to go for the most dramatic-looking shot possible. And so as a result, we got this sort of shot of uh, this panel of Hank just – backhanding Janet like violently and her flying and then basically regardless of what the intent was in this script that's a version that made it to print and people were rightly shocked and of course he gets booted out of the Avengers he's he's generally like persona non grata for a while uh, it's not until West Coast Avengers that they start rehabbing him a bit but like basically you know the idea of of Hank Pym wife beater got cemented because of that and so it's one of these things that because it's 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 for for better or worse it is one of those moments that that sort of uh that that's has stuck with that character um now it's like one of those things whenever people write Hank Pym in the Avengers they inevitably sort of want to have Hank sort of redeem himself for for that act and it is kind of interesting, like, uh, and and I'm I'm not sure that was like the best thing they could have done with the character because I do think it it limits his commercial viability on some level. Like he's he's always going to have like an asterisk next to his name when you think of him as a superhero. It's like basically it's like Hank Pym. He you know discovered Pym particles and you know it's probably like the third smartest guy in the Marvel universe and all these other cool things. And there was that time he slapped his wife. And, you know, and that and that's like a thing that can't and shouldn't be trivialized. And it's one of the reasons why like long running franchises really do have to be careful about what they do, uh, the choices they make with those characters. Like basically, if you're designing a character that's that's going to sort of uh, be around for like a long run for for decades after uh, after you, you you really have to sort of think about. How do I preserve this so that the next person who who wants to sort of take the toy out of the box and play with it uh, can can do so without having to worry about like certain storylines or or baggage that that's going to impede the the types of stories they can tell? Yeah, because it's an, it's essential in comic books for 
the characters to go through different events and situations, but at the end of the day, almost be the same character. Peter Parker will always be the guy, is a nerdy high schooler who got bit by a spider whose uncle passed away, and now he learned great power comes with great responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, there's a sort of a, like a reset button that gets hit with a lot of these runs. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like, the, the it's almost like with the Fantastic Four, they sort of default back to to whatever whatever character development they had. It sort of seems like there's a sort of baseline for for what the characters' personalities are that everyone wants to write when they, they take their own yeah. Fantastic Four. Everybody kind of gets reverted back to what they were. Yeah. yeah, like same way Dan Slott, when he finishes his Spider-Man run, he's like, well, okay, I've made Peter Parker like, you know, this sort of tech com, like dot com billionaire or like this this, this tech billionaire. Uh, and he's like, well, I got to make him broke again. Like, you know, because like that's the like, you know. Essential like part, part of Peter Parker. Yeah. 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 Um, last question here. What do you think are the benefits of the storytelling form of comics versus adaptations on the big or small screen? The benefits, I feel like the benefits uh, for uh, for the adaptations is that they become sort of distillations of the the essence of the character. It, it becomes basically what uh, what the the essential version of it is. Like you know, like the the sort of the the stuff that everyone uh, responds to. It tends to sort of boil it down to you know Tony Stark, genius billionaire playboy philanthropist who who basically has seen the error of his ways after sort of being uh, sort of affected by his own weaponry and and decides to do good peter parker is like this kid who you know basically fell backwards into all these uh, spectacular abilities used him irresponsibly once and paid for it and now he's he's sort of you know trying to make up for that uh steve rogers man out of time like that basically they all sort of uh, like when you when you're sort of you're not getting the the sort of the long version of it like basically there's this sort of idea of what is this character at their core and how do you do that uh i think with adaptations there's also uh budget like i mean basically there there's sort of this term from from german aesthetic theory like you know gesamtkunstwerk uh or complete work and like that's kind of what film sort of offers. Like you get not only like, you know, live action actors, you get like the special effects are, are there so that you can do this stuff. You've got like sound and you've got like that sort of immersive experience of it. And like, you know, basically those are uh, things that are not available in the medium of comics. On the other hand, with comics, you've got uh, the ability to sort of serialize and, and do long form storytelling. Like basically you can have a writer sort of uh, plant seeds for a longer arc. Like Chris Claremont got the, like worked on X-Men for 17 years in his original run, uh, starting with like 1975 through the early nineties. Basically that's a long time to, to lay foundations for stories you want to tell. Uh, like it allowed him to sort of respond to different prevailing cultural trends. So like he could do, he could see how like, you know, the response to to HIV AIDS was lacking in the 80s and and sort of say, well, OK, this is this is due to, you know, the LGBTQ community being a marginalized population. Well, that puts them in an X-Men's uh, like wheelhouse in terms of representation. So the legacy virus storyline comes out of that. Uh, basically, 
that's that's sort of like the the thing that comics can do is is like you get to check in with these characters on a monthly basis and and they they just keep going on i feel like with and they they're sort of evergreen they're they're because they're constantly reinventing themselves the movies are sort of they're going to uh, uh, date to their particular sort of historical era like the original iron man is very much sort of a movie in 2008 that is informed by the hangover from Bush administration policies. Uh, it's kind of hard not, not to watch, say, you know, uh, Avengers and not think of it as a, a version of 9-11 where we won or to look at Winter Soldier and think of it as being at least in part about Obama's kill list and, and, and the drone strike program. Like that there are basically ways in which those works are going to be sort of like reflections of the the specific era in which they're made and like they're kind of frozen in amber or in a block of ice if you you want to go there in that way i think there's also this interesting concept because we were talking about how in comics uh these characters kind of revert back to what they originally were whereas in the adaptation that's kind of difficult because these actors well they age you know yeah. they age out they want to do other projects things like that and i think they've had an interesting solution to that problem of having the essence of the character, like you said, the distillation be transplanted into someone else, like with Steve Rogers, Captain America. Now we have the new Captain America, where it's the same ideals, but changed not only for the character itself, the different actors to be playing them, but also for the different ideas that are very important to uh, culture in, in the day and age that it's made with Black Captain America we're having a lot of talks about black politics, black restoration, things like that. Whereas that wasn't really on the minds of the U.S. society in 2012 when the first went to the first Avenger came out. Yeah, like I mean that that's uh, that's true. I think that movie was I think that was 2009 or 2010. I ain't good at my dates. <laughs> I remember the first Avengers movie that came out May 4th, 2012. I know because I went to see it opening night. <laughs> but like, uh, basically, there is this sort of, uh, it's funny, there was, there was, so with Captain America, there have been periodic stories where someone else took the mantle. Um, and so there was, uh, there was a period, uh, it was pretty much during the all new, all different initiative at, uh, at Marvel where they were like, Sam Wilson's going to be Captain America now. Uh, basically, uh, due to uh, stuff that was going on, uh, fallout from the the uh, Rick Remender Captain America run, Steve was incapable of, of serving as Cap at that point, and so Sam took over. During the Ed Brubaker run, Bucky took over as Cap for a while after Bucky sort of famously came back from the dead. That was like thought of one of the, the third rails of the Captain America mythology. You can't do that until Brubaker came up with an idea of how it would work. Uh, Basically, and of course, in the Mark Grunewald run of the 80s, there was the sort of uh, John Walker takes over as Captain America storyline that that's now informing uh, Falcon Winter Soldier. Uh, so basically, the idea of, of having someone else in, in Steve's suit, uh, like that really sort of, it's it, for their own specific moment, there, there's been this kind of, you know, to shake things up a bit, but also like when the writer wants to sort of comment on like contemporary politics, like, I mean, it's kind of hard to not read, like, I mean, John Walker is very much a response to, to sort of Grunewald's response to, to Reagan era foreign policy, Reagan era domestic policy for that matter. 
uh, basically Brubaker's Captain America run is sort of coming out in, in an era where, you know, the Iraq war is going on and there's real sort of uh, concerns about what is American culture. And to have Steve Rogers kill, he gets better. But like uh, basically, you know, like there's like that sort of that moment of disillusionment and you have a Captain America who is now very uncertain of himself, who basically has, uh, you know, he, he doesn't think of himself as having an unerring moral compass. Uh, he, he wants to do right by his, his friend's legacy. And he's, he's really sort of, you know, questioning how one does that. And that, that really sort of informs that part of Brubaker's run. And similarly, like I, 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 I I honestly think that a big part of what's going on with Nick Spencer's sort of take on Sam Wilson as Cap in the comics is that Obama's president at this point. Like there is this sort of desire to say, okay, to a certain extent, the the face of uh, of America is is a black man. So why not make him such in the comics and deal with what does it mean for a black man to wear the stars and stripes in that way? And so like basically there there is this sort of way in which that that storyline then gets sort of adapted to the film version. It's kind of like an organic solution to to the fact that Chris Evans basically there there was limits on on what he was contracted to do and and he has this desire to do other projects. So that basically that's the way that you you sort of get past the the idea of of the impossibility of doing the sliding time scale in the the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that you uh, there's so many sort of like you know characters who who take up these uh, these mantles it's why we're getting uh thor like love and thunder now with which is inspired by jason aaron's run on uh the comics where where jane thought uh, foster is thor uh and uh, so like going forth there's also a number of other characters who can sort of pick up the baton for like the icons who are sort of retiring so like the that's the that's the plan with like Black Panther and and Captain Marvel and uh, and a few others. We'll see what happens with uh, with the Tom Holland Spider Man because the rights to that are sort of complicated due to to the the sort of uh, the agreement with Sony. But like so uh, so there, there's that aspect too. Like figuring out who's uh, what are the next franchises that are going to be spotlighted. Yeah, and. The franchises that are spotlighted say a lot uh, before it was three white men and now we're moving into this era where it might be women or people of color, things like that. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It was sure. an awesome conversation to have. Do you have anything that you'd like to shout out or plug? Um, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Um, I mean, right now, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm teaching at the university, so I've got like, a, uh, I generally teach courses related to, you know, uh, matters of race and ethnicity, but also pop culture. So right now I'm teaching a course on African-American literature that is essentially like Afro speculative fiction. And I, I teach a course on, on comics, on graphic novels. Uh, basically that course is, is Black Panther centric at, at the moment. So it, it's sort of like doing the the fifty plus year year history, like more or less the the type of stuff that I'm doing in the book. So um, so if you if you really like Black Panther, like you know that that's your course. You, yeah. Awesome, thank you so much. I hope you have a good day. Thanks, you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course.